Now let's open our Bibles together this morning to 2 Kings chapter 22. 2 Kings chapter 22. Before reading, let's bow before the Lord in prayer. Almighty God and our Father in heaven, we pray that the Lord Jesus Christ will be exalted through the reading and proclamation of the Word of God. We ask that you will give to this preacher and to all who are here warm hearts. To every believer, a heart that is aflame with love for Christ. Because of that great love wherewith you have loved us as shown in the cross and the shed blood and the perfect merit of our Savior, through which alone we are saved. And Father, we ask as well that those who may be among us today who are strangers to grace may be found of you, and that being found of you, they will be saved for time and for eternity. Will you use this congregation for the upbuilding of the saints, the winning of the lost, here and throughout the world? For we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. 2 Kings chapter 22, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkot. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in all the way of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right or to the left. In the eighteenth year of King Josiah... The king sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, son of Meshulam, the secretary, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hokiah the high priest, that he may count the money that has been brought into the house of the Lord, which the keepers of the threshold have collected from the people. And let it be given into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord, And let them give it to the workmen who are at the house of the Lord repairing the house, that is, to the carpenters and to the builders and to the masons. And let them use it for buying timber and quarried stone to repair the house. But no accounting shall be asked from them for the money that is delivered into their hand, for they deal honestly. And Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan, and he read it. And Shaphan the secretary came to the king and reported to the king, Your servants have emptied out the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of the workmen who have the oversight of the house of the Lord. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the high priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. When the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam the son of Shaphan and Achbor the son of Micaiah and Shaphan the secretary and Isaiah the king's servant saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest and Ahikam and Achbor and Shaphan and Isaiah went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tikvah, son of Harhas, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter, and they talked with her. And she said to them, 
Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse. And you have torn your clothes and wept before me. I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. I doubt that I need to convince the believers in the Lord Jesus Christ gathered here this morning that we are in need in our country in the church of revival. I think that should be obvious to all of us. But let me emphasize two reasons for which we should, as God's people, be praying for revival today. The first is because the distinction of church and world is very thin. The church in its doctrine and life throughout our country is so much like the world, and Christians are so much like the world in how we think and how we live that the distinction between church and world is very, very thin indeed. The other reason is because of the direction of our culture. Often it is true that as goes the church, so goes the world. As goes the church, so goes the culture. As goes the church, so goes the nation. That is not always the case, but it is often the case. And certainly when we pray for revival for the church, we are also praying that the Lord might be pleased to bring in a great harvest of souls that would also turn our nation to the Lord Jesus Christ. For those reasons, we should be praying for revival. Well, here in this text, we see an Old Testament revival, and we see the amazing grace of God. God has given to Judah a good king, Josiah by name. His father had led Israel, or Judah, into the cesspool of iniquity. But Josiah points to the true king. We read in verse 2, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He walked in the ways of his father David, and he did not turn aside to the right nor to the left. Now, that latter expression, he did not turn aside to the right or to the left, is taken from the book of Deuteronomy, in which you find it several times. It means, it means um, uh, submission to the Word of God, um, adherence to the law of the Lord. It's a kind of formula showing that the king especially will be a follower of the living and the true God. And so we've had this apostasy, this great good king is now in place by the sovereign hand of God's goodness, and we see this wonderful thing that happens. First of all, we see God's word discovered. God's word discovered. The setting is this, Josiah repairs the temple. 
Obviously, he is removing idolatry and he is restoring right worship of the people of God. And during the time of his father, the temple has been utterly neglected. In the process, he sends Shaphan the scribe to oversee the money that relates to the repair of the temple, to Hilkiah the high priest. And there we find in this text the greatest discovery of all. Hilkiah says in verse 8, I have found the book of the law. I'm sure he said it with great excitement in his voice. I have found the book of the law. I have found something that you need to know about. I have found something the king needs to hear. I have found something that is of utmost significance for our people. Now, by finding the book of the law, what is meant here is that the book of Deuteronomy has been discovered. That is the book that tells Israel how to be obedient. It tells Israel the consequences for obedience and the consequences for disobedience, the blessings and the curses. It tells the king how he is to rule the nation. It must have been lost for a long, long time. Obviously, it had not been read during Josiah's father's reign. So perhaps for that entire time, it has been under some pile of rubbish over there in the corner in the temple and has not been read to the king has not been read to the people of God. Evidently, by the way, Josiah, because he is a good king who wants to serve the Lord, obviously, some way or other, he had been orally instructed. He was not brought up on the book of Deuteronomy. He had not read it for himself. It had not been read to him, but he had been orally instructed. Uh, Let me speculate for a moment that the one who taught him was his mother, certainly not his father, didn't get it from his father who hated God, hated the truth, hated all of the worship of the living and true God. Perhaps it was from his mother. How often we find in the Bible that mothers are the source of blessing for their children and teaching them the word of the Lord. Well, this is a great thing. Wouldn't you agree that the word of God, the book of Deuteronomy, so essential for the reign of the nation, the rule of the nation, in order that the king and the people may please the Lord in the way in which they think and live, has now been rediscovered. And let me say to you that there is a great need for the rediscovery of the word of God, not simply the book of Deuteronomy, but the whole of the word of God in the world today. We need today a rediscovery of the word of God in the church in which we so often set aside the word as our only authority, our only rule of faith and of practice. Uh, We need this word once again to be proclaimed clearly in our culture and in our nation, in which we now live in a biblically illiterate church, but also in a vastly illiterate, biblically illiterate country and nation. Just read some of the old sermons that used to be preached by ministers of a day gone by, not that long ago. And you can hear in their preaching what they could assume that God's people knew about the Bible. That assumption is no longer there, but we're being taught, we're growing, we're understanding, but the Word needs to be rediscovered in church and in nation. What about in your life? Let me ask you that. Has there been a time in your life as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ that you have loved this word, you have kept this word, you have obeyed this word, you have lived a life of faith and repentance underneath the authority of this word, but now as we turn into the first Sunday of a new year, you can say things are different. Sadly, sadly, you have deteriorated and you have apostatized. Is there not someone, perhaps several of us here, who can say, I need a rediscovery of the word of God in my life? 
Is there not someone here who can say, I need the discovery of the Word of God for the very first time? Let me tell you, even though I was brought up hearing the Word of God, there is a sense in which I did not discover the Word of God until Christ was personally revealed to me through the power of the Holy Spirit as a boy of 13 years old. Before that, the Bible meant nothing to me. I did not understand the Bible. After that, the Bible meant everything to me. I longed to read the Bible. I would take the Bible to bed with me at night. As my wife, I still do. We love the Word of God, care about the Word of God. Do you need to discover the Word of God in your life? So that's the first thing we see in the text, the Word of God discovered. But then as we move on, we see God's Word read. God's Word read. Now, there are probably four readings of the word. Shaphan reads this word, according to verse 8. Shaphan then read it to the king in verse 10. Probably as he and the company sent by the king go to Huldah the prophetess in 22 verse 14, it is read or at least discussed with her. And then as we move into the next chapter, chapter 23, we find that the king reads it to the leaders and to the people of God gathered together. The king reads it himself to the people of God. Now, this is the principle of Reformation and Revival. The Word of God must be available, and the Word of God must be read. This is the great principle of Reformation, Renewal, and Revival. This is where reverence for the Word of God comes, reading it, understanding it, and taking it into the heart. If, for example, you studied the 16th century Reformation, that great time in which Luther and Calvin preached, you would find that the Reformation of the 16th century was a rediscovery of the Word of God. Uh, You would find that, for example, the publication of the Greek New Testament, you have no idea how that revolutionized life in the 16th century. You have no idea. As scholars began to read the Bible in the original... If you read Dobinia's History of the Reformation in England, there's a chapter that is entitled, The Greek New Testament Raises the Dead. (laughs) That's what happened. And then, of course, translating into the vernacular so that everyone would have the Bible in his own language and would be able to read it. Because, you see, the Bible is alive, and when the Bible is read, it spreads from one person to another to another to another. When the Bible is read, then it is believed as the Holy Spirit opens the heart. And so we find the Bible being read. What about you? I ask you this question. Are you reading the Word of God? Is this book alive to you? Are you so thrilled with the Word of God as was Josiah in this text? Are you so thrilled with the Word of God that you actually are reading the Word? I've heard ministers say from pulpits, You know, don't feel too badly if you miss your quiet time with the Lord and your devotions and your time in God's Word. Uh, Don't feel too badly about that. Well, let me say, feel badly. (laughs) Hey, look, there's nothing wrong with feeling badly about missing time in God's Word. I'm not saying you're under condemnation. I'm not saying you're, you're, you're under this load of guilt that's going to send you to hell. You know I'm not saying that. You're justified by grace through faith, but God has given to you his word. And some of us just don't read it. Now, why don't some of us read? Well, let me first of all say, some find reading very, very difficult and reading the Bible very, very difficult. Well, if you are one who finds reading difficult, perhaps you're not a reader. Do you long to hear it preached? 
Do you long to hear the Word of God? Do you have a longing for the Word of God, even if God has not given to you that particular gift? But for others, I think we bought into our culture's view of the Bible. We have these TV documentaries in which these so-called scholars from various places come on and they tell you what the Bible doesn't mean and how we no longer can believe the miracles and all of this nonsense. Of course, I went to a school, all of my undergraduate work was done in a school that taught that kind of thing. Some of us just don't want to read the Bible because it confronts our sins. We don't want our sins uncovered. We don't want to read the Bible because it exposes the heart. Now you tell me, is that not true? Others of us perhaps don't read because, well, just to be blunt, we're lazy people. We're lazy about it. Now imagine for a moment there's this young man and he's in love with this girl, or at least so it seems, and she's been writing love letters. And uh, finally the day comes where they can have a little time alone. They're walking maybe beside a beautiful lake. They're watching the swans down at the lake. They're talking about all kinds of things that lovers talk about. She says to him, hey, what did you think of my last letter? What letter was that, he says. Well, you know, my last letter, the one that came, it was, you know, perfumed, thick. I wrote a lot. Oh, that. You know, when I saw how thick it was, I just, I just didn't bother to open it. I thought... Well, I could smell the perfume. It, I, know, I know it's a love letter. It, it, and then, you know what? You write some pretty deep things. It's really difficult for me to read your letters. So I just didn't read. I think that lady should reconsider. <laughs> but what do we do? We have the Bible given to us in love from God to his people. He says, I love you. I've written to you my Bible. I give to you my word. I give to you this love letter, if you will. Greatest love letter that has ever been written, and what do we do? We close it, it gathers dust. All right, I think the problem is this, and that leads us to the third thing. God's Word has been discovered, God's Word is read. Now, we also see God's Word received. God's Word received. God's word in this passage was not only discovered, it was not only read, it was received into the heart. It was received. So it is one thing to read the word, it is another thing to receive the word. Perhaps you say, well, who believes any of this anymore? We're too sophisticated for this kind of thing. Or ask the critics what we can keep. Or the Bible's just a nose of wax that you can shape any old way that you want. That shows that you've not received the word of God. Josiah received the word. He tore his clothes, we read in verse 11. He tore his clothes. He rent his garment. Why? Because he was rending his heart before the Lord. The tearing of the clothes showed what was in the heart. He was rending his heart in grief upon realizing how they had rejected the word of God. This is the first time he's heard this word. Oh, my duties as a king. Oh, the duties of God's people, how they are to follow the Lord. And we have not even heard his word. We've rejected his word. And so he tore his clothes. What is Josiah doing? Josiah is receiving the word of God. He wants to know how to lead the nation. That's why he sends this delegation down to the prophetess. And the reform, the reform 
that he brings about on the basis of reading the Word of God is very comprehensive. Now that takes us into chapter 23. Let me summarize. He's read the word to the people of God that are gathered, convened the leaders and the people so that they will hear God's holy word. And then Josiah consecrates himself and the nation to the Lord. And then he removes the idolatry. Look at chapter 23, verses 4 through 8. See how comprehensive this is. And the king commanded Hilkiah the high priest and the priests of the second order and the keepers of the threshold to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels made for Baal and Asherah and for all the hosts of heaven. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he deposed the priests whom the kings of Judah had ordained to make offerings in the high places as the cities of Judah and around Jerusalem. Those also who burned incense to Baal, to the sun, the moon, the constellations, and all the hosts of the heavens. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook Kidron, and burned it at the brook Kidron, and beat it to dust, and cast the dust of it upon the graves of the common people. And he broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord, where the women wove hangings for the Asherah. And he brought all the priests out of the cities of Judah and defiled the high places where the priests had made offerings from Geba to Beersheba. And he broke down the high places of the gates that were at the entrance of the gate of Joshua, the governor of the city, which were on ones left at the gate of the city. So he's very thorough, isn't he? Gathers the people, reads the word, consecrates himself to the people, removes idolatry, has these Asherah poles and other idols burned. And he brings them where? Did you notice? He said, bring them down into the Kidron Valley. Why? I'll tell you why. Because during the rainy season, the Kidron becomes awash with water and it sweeps like a torrent everything before it into the Dead Sea. He doesn't even want the ashes of idolatry in his life. Josiah the king does not even want the ashes of idolatry in his kingdom. And so he takes these things, he burns them there so that they will be swept away into the Dead Sea. Now that's what God's Word is calling us to this morning. That's what it is to receive the Word of God. To say to the Lord, I don't want anything in my life that doesn't belong there. I want to take that idol, I want to burn it, and not just burn it. I don't want to see the ashes of it anymore. I want to burn it in the Kidron so that the water of your grace will sweep it away into the sea in which it will no longer be remembered. That's what we do with the idols of our hearts. So he removes the ritual prostitution. He destroys the high places. He puts away the mediums and those who who deal with the dead. He takes away household gods. And then at the end of the chapter, or in verses 21 or so of chapter 23, he establishes again the Passover. They hadn't been observing the Passover. They hadn't even remembered that they were a people of God who had been delivered from Egypt by His gracious hand. They hadn't been observing the Passover. That Passover in which the Passover lamb would be sacrificed, in which there would be 
the understanding in the heart, oh, for a Passover lamb that would take away the sin of the people of God, that would point ahead to the Messiah, to Christ. They hadn't been observing the Passover. That would be like your ministers and elders neglecting to bring the Lord's table to you for year after year after year after year, though Christ has commanded it. So he reestablishes the Passover observance, a remarkable thing. When God's word is recovered, it leads to action. When God's word really gets down deep in the heart, it leads to the destruction of idols. It means that you will establish the Lord's priority, whatever that priority may be, or priorities in your life that you have been neglecting. It means killing sin. As John Owen said, you'd better be killing sin or sin will be killing you. It means killing sin in your life. And that's how you know if you have received the word of God. Is it actually bringing forth results and fruit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, yes, but am I killing sin? Is it bringing fruit in my life? So I ask you to ask yourself the question, is that true in my life? Do I so love the Bible, love His Word, every bit of it? I want to know it. I want to understand it. I will put the energy and effort into understanding this book so that I may find Christ on every page and that it will lead my heart to worship and remove the idols from my, from my heart as a believer in Jesus. God's Word discovered. God's Word read. God's Word received. Have you discovered it? Do you read it? Do you receive it? But there's a fourth thing we need to say. We've been making application all along. We need to be more pointed. And so God's Word to us is the fourth point. God's Word to us. What is the message for your heart and mine, for this church, as we read about this rediscovery of the Word of God in 2 Kings 22 and 23? Well, let me give you a few thoughts. First of all, the Word of God had been lost, hadn't it? It hadn't been read, it hadn't been acknowledged, it hadn't been received, the Word of God had been lost. What are the signs of losing the Bible in our lives? What are the signs of losing the Bible in our church, or in the church in America, or in our culture? Well, carelessness toward preaching is one of them, or carelessness of preachers in preaching, not caring about the Word, preaching themselves rather than Christ and Him crucified and what the text teaches, but also on the part of the people of God, carelessness about it. I can live without that. Let me tell you something. When I stand here and I preach the Word of God to you Sunday after Sunday, here's what I see. Sinners saved by grace. Your salvation guaranteed. But nonetheless, God has appointed means for bringing about what He has guaranteed and the means that He has brought about in order to take us all the way to heaven is the preached Word and the sacraments, public worship and prayer. That's how I view my role in your life. I'm here to help prepare you for a good death. And insofar as I'm able by the grace of God and the preaching of the word to see that you get there. God has promised it, but he uses means to bring it about. You need the word. You need it preached. You need it proclaimed. And you need to read it as well. 
It's the cumulative effect, by the way. Not what happens in one sermon when you walk out and say, I don't feel anything today. Or It's the cumulative effect of being under the authority of the Word. Lord's Day after Lord's Day after Lord's Day. And I say to you, look, you come to me for counsel. My first word is going to be, I want you there Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday night. You need the Word. So, sign of losing the Bible? Carelessness toward preaching. Selective reading, passing by, convicting passages. Missing Christ and redemption. A disdain for God's law. We lose the Bible when we do not read it. We lose the Bible when we do not value it. We lose the Bible when we just pay lip service to the Word. Contrast these attitudes. In Amos 8, 11, we read, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but the hearing of the words of the Lord. Oh, what a tragedy that God would speak of a famine of His word for the church. But then, listen to Paul the Apostle as he commends the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 2.13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it really is the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Which characterizes your life and your attitude? Is there a famine of the word of the Lord in your soul? Or is there an eagerness to hear and receive and believe and to act upon the word in your heart, which is true for you. John Rogers, the Puritan, preached uh, outside of Cambridge in a place called Dedham. They used to say, let's go to Dedham and get a little fire. John Rogers would preach to his people this way. On a Thursday, what was called a lecture day, that's midweek service, people would gather from all around. And the great Puritan pulpit, there would be a, a cushion, a large cushion. The great pulpit Bible would be there. And he would proclaim the Word of God to his people there in Dedham. On this particular occasion, as people gathered, he impersonated God to the people. He said, you've not read my Word. You don't care anything about my Word. You're not living my Word. As if he were God, he took the Bible up and he turned his back upon the people and he walked away with the Bible. He said, well, if you're not going to love my word, I'll take my Bible from you. Now, that's happened in cultures. It's happened in churches. It's happening now in our country. I'll take my word from you. And then, as if he were the people, he fell upon his knees and he expostulated with God, Oh, God, God, do not take your word from us. Do not take your Bible from us. Take our lives, take our substance, take our goods, take our children, but do not take your Bible from your church. And as if he were God himself, taking that great massive Bible, he placed it again on the cushion and he said, well, is your repentance real deep? Is it true? I will bring my Bible back to you. Will you hear that word? Will you read it? Will you love it? Will you receive it with a heart that is sincere? And so I ask you the question, is God taking away his word from the church today? And believe me, it's happening. Because we don't care, and we're not sincere, and we don't want God. Or will we fall upon our knees 
And will we cry out, oh God, oh God, do anything, but do not take your word. We cannot live without your word. When Thomas Goodwin heard that sermon, he went outside and he said he hung upon his horse for 40 minutes before he could stop weeping and get on to ride away. Do we even care today? Well, signs of losing the Bible. Let me also say, God's word to us this morning, beware of shifting the foundation. Why all of this false doctrine in Judah? Why all of this false religion? Why all of this idolatry and the false living that came from it? Because they had lost the word of God. Why all the false doctrine, false religion, false idolatry, false living in the church today and in our country today? And the answer is clear. Because we've shifted our foundation from the word of God to the word of man, thinking that man is autonomous. I see it overtly and I see it covertly. You know, I I visit churches when I'm away from here, not away often. Preaching that's evangelical sometimes, It's awfully nice, kind of saccharine, worship that's light on reverence, preaching that really makes no demands, rather than bowing to the sovereign authority of God's holy word. Listen, there is no other foundation that can be laid than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus, and we learn that from the word of God. I don't care if you think I'm old-fashioned. I don't care. Praise God, give us old-fashioned preachers. We need the Word. Our culture says the Word isn't true. Are they doing better? Is it leading them to have strong homes? Is it leading them to under... Our culture can't even understand that marriage is between one man and one woman. So blind is our culture. And they tell us that we're stupid for believing the Bible? I'll take what I see in the homes in this congregation any day. Who are basing their lives on the Word of God. Young people, you better hear. You'd better receive it. And then I also want you to see what God can do. Before we can rightly address the religious and moral condition of the nation... We have to address the religious and moral character of the church because judgment belongs and begins at the house of God. And see what he does in this chapter? He gives to them a gracious king. The word of God is rediscovered. It is read. It is believed in the heart. It is acted upon. This is what God can do. True, it was temporary. All revival is. Revival is an acceleration of the ordinary means of grace. But thank God for those interventions of God in the history of our nation, for example, in which God has turned us around. You know, that happened in England, mid-18th century. If you would take the time to look at Hogarth's etchings and sketches, you will see the portraits of life in England at the time. Gin was everywhere. Gin was in every house. It was said that from the mother's breast, the babies absorbed gin. England was completely doped, literally, with alcohol. 
You think of people going to church in the 18th century England? No, they didn't. When they did, they didn't hear the gospel. They heard cold Unitarianism. They heard sophisticated nonsense. Uh, Well-polished sermons that, that reached no heart. The Bible wasn't expounded at all. And what did God do? God in His grace began to convert one man after another throughout England. They didn't even know one another. Men already preaching. They were lost men. They didn't know Jesus. And one after one, they came to know Christ, and they began to preach the Bible. And God sent a massive awakening to England. You know the names of Wesley and Whitfield and others. God sent a massive awakening to England, and he recovered the church. And the blessing to the nation... It has been said that it kept England from another French Revolution. Tell me if we do not need that today. Does your heart not stir to pray for it? J.C. Ryle says when God takes a work in hand, nothing can stop it. And these preachers that were awakened and began to preach took up the old apostolic weapon of preaching. No special effects, no strobe lights, No machines that put smoke out in the, no rock music, just the preaching of the Word of God. They went back to first principles. They took up apostolic plans. They exalted Christ crucified. They lived in prayer. They called men to faith and repentance. God changed the church. God changed the nation. So I ask you something. Have you lost your earnestness before the Lord? Has your heart on this first Sunday of the year, has your heart become so cold that you can look at the church and not care or care little? Look at the nation and not care or care little. Josiah rent his garments. He tore his clothes. He tore his heart before the Lord. And I'm preaching to God's people this morning. Do you remember what we're told in 2 Chronicles 7.14? You see that applied to the nation, but its first application is not to our country, it's to us. In the Old Testament, church and state were one. It's applied to the church, first of all. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray, and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. That's what God is calling us to in light of this text this morning. Listen to it. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Wilbur Smith noted nine characteristics of revivals in the Old Testament because you know there are numbers of them. This is just one of numbers of them in the Old Testament. Listen to those characteristics. Characteristics of revivals in the Old Testament. They occurred in times of moral darkness and national depression. Each began in the heart of a consecrated servant of God who became the energizing power behind it. Each revival rested on the Word of God, and most were the result of proclaiming God's Word with power. All resulted in a return to the worship of God. Each witnessed 
the destruction of idols where they existed. In each revival, there was a recorded separation from sin. Did you hear that? In each revival, there was a recorded separation from sin. In every revival, the people returned to obeying God's laws. There was a restoration of great joy and gladness. And each revival was followed by a period of national prosperity. Now, we believe in original sin. The corruption of our entire nature because of Adam's fall. We believe in the total depravity of man, that men are dead in trespasses and sins, and we believe that only God can change the hearts of those who are outside of Christ, who hate the gospel, who hate God, who hate the truth. Then why aren't we on our knees praying for it? Why aren't we asking God to intervene? Why are we not praying, Lord, since only you can do this thing, Lord, we pray that you will do it. And pray it even if you don't see it in your lifetime. Because God always hears and answers the prayers of his people for his glory and our good. Live consistently with the desire for this kind of reformation, renewal, and revival, and pray for it. And pray for it here in our midst, in our congregation Charles Spurgeon was absolutely right when somewhere he said, you cannot get out of the church what is not in it. That's what I have meant for years when I have said to you the greatest outreach begins with the best inreach. That when we are as the people of God in our own congregation what God wants us to be under the authority of his word, that is the church that God uses with the lost outside of our walls. But now, people of God, having called you and me to be submissive to this word and to love it and to pray that God will renew in our church today, throughout our land today, this love for the word of God just as he did in Josiah's day. I would not neglect to address those who are lost and undone and who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ who are here today. And I say to you, listen, a greater era has dawned than this era. He heard the law of God and tore his heart. The Savior of men came into this world and bore the penalty of that broken law. Our King paid the price. He paid the price of our sinning against his broken law. The old covenant was powerless to save. The new covenant in Christ's blood is able to save. And so I say to you this morning, come, come, come. On this first Sunday of a new year, come, come. You've never come before, now come. In faith to the Lord Jesus Christ, whose arms are stretched wide open for sinners. Come in faith to Jesus Christ. Come, hear his word this morning. Come. Submit to what he says. Believe in Christ. Repent of your sins. Trust in what he alone has done to save sinners like us. Hear the word of God from his own lips. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. 
And I will promise you on the authority of this word that if you truly come in faith to Jesus Christ and you ask him to save you, I can say this, he will receive you because he always keeps his word. And all of God's people here can say, he has done that for me. And God's people said, amen. Amen.